Well, first of all, let me apologize. <clears throat> Obviously, we had a miscommunication intended for the vote to be taken now, <clears throat> not at the first of the service. And uh, after I had had a chance to read to you uh, the um, job description, some of you did not get a chance to vote, and it's certainly not too late uh, to do that. Let me go ahead and give you what I intended to say, and if you haven't had an opportunity to vote, uh, the ushers will be available to take your, take your vote. First of all, I wanted to tell you that the deacons have met and discussed that and have given their approval, and the finance team met this afternoon and also granted their approval to the six-month temporary uh, position that we're talking about for Brother Scott, the job description for <clears throat> this job, uh, I'll not read you all of this because there's four pages of it, <clears throat> but if you'd like to see it, I'll certainly be more than willing for you to, to look at it, but the basic responsibilities are under the music side to organize and lead the corporate worship service on Sunday morning and evening, lead and oversee the praise team and praise band to coordinate the performance schedules of all music groups and individuals to direct the adult choir, to plan and lead the worship and special music for special events and holidays, obviously Easter, Christmas, missions conference, all of those kinds of things, the normal pastoral duties, the weekly pastoral staff meetings, supervise the maintenance and addition to the public to the music library and equipment including the music materials supplies and instruments to assist with sound setup and be responsible for placing and resetting all instruments for services and other events as necessary on the maintenance side of that there will would be the one who would be responsible for periodically obtaining bids when the churches getting estimates for work from companies outside the church when we have necessary repairs and upkeep or new construction or vans. There are repeated upkeeps, which there are uh, almost without limit here. Change and clean the air filters, change the light bulbs that's needed, repair and replace tables, make, maintain the maintenance on the three vans. Um, Here's one that will keep you busy for the rest of your life. Make sure that the auditorium doors work properly. Adjust timing for the lights on the, on the parking lot. Ongoing responsibilities are roof repairs. And when you consider that some of our buildings are 60 years old, I guarantee you that's an ongoing responsibility. Heat and air units maintained and uh, overseeing repairs, plumbing repairs, uh, church security, distributing, making, and maintaining a record of all the keys of all the locks on the church property. I'm pretty sure now that everyone in Valonia has at least one key to First Baptist Church. Uh, distribute and maintain the security codes for all church members who have keys. Keep all the doors and their locks in working order. Oversee the alarm system, 
supplies and tools, know where the supplies are that we have and what they are and where they are, purchase supplies as needed for special projects, keep in stock repeated supplies uh, for necessary repairs, in charge of all the custodial personnel and their particular areas. And I'll just cut to the chase at the very bottom, the one that I like the best, of course I put it there, other assigned duties as determined by the pastor. <laughs> That's an all-encompassing job right there. Anybody have a question about Voin? Is there what? He haven't heard all that until just now, so uh, he says he does. <clears throat> yes. Questions? All right. Anybody that did not, was not able to vote earlier, that the deacons can now pick up your, or the ushers can now pick up your vote? Anybody? Anybody at all? Or if you need a ballot. Over there, uh, Mark, I'd be glad to get you one. I'm sorry about that. Apparently, I did not communicate very clearly what my intention was, and I apologize. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Message tonight entitled, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. If you're really into the outline that you get in your bulletin, you're going to need to pay specially get close attention tonight because there are some changes in the outline between what you have and what will be on the screen. So you'll need to make those changes as we go through. If we're honest, the till death do us part part of the marriage ceremony has become more and more ironic. In the 1930s, one out of seven marriages ended in a divorce. By the 1960s, it was one out of four. But today we know that it is about one half, 50% of all marriages in the United States end a divorce. If we break that down statistically, 41% of first marriages end in divorce, 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. What you may not know, and I didn't, is Arkansas has the second highest rate divorce in the country and that the divorce rate for men in Arkansas is the highest in the country. At the time of Paul, the Roman family was devastated. Seneca wrote that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. In Rome, Romans did not commonly date their years by numbers, but they called them by the names of their husbands. Marshall, the Roman poet, tells of a woman who had ten husbands. Juvenal tells of one who had eight husbands in five years. 
Jerome declares it to be true that in Roman in Rome there was a woman who was married to her 23rd husband and she herself was his 21st wife. I don't even know how you would keep up with that many. So it's not surprising then that the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage has arisen in the city of Corinth. There are some members of the church with a Jewish background who believe that to be single is sinful because that is what Orthodox Judaism taught. There are others from a pagan background who say that celibacy is the only right thing for a Christian. So if you're married, you ought to get out of that marriage, and especially if you happen to be married to an unbeliever, you need to dump them. So it's easy to see that there was vast confusion with some saying that everybody needed to be married and some saying that everyone needed to be single. As we continue in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians this evening, we move from one uncomfortable subject marriage and intimacy to another, the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It also proves that I'm not very bright. If I had been real bright, I would have made James or Bobby cover this while I was out, and I'd be in the clear. This is a subject that is full of difficulties in application. There are two real extremes that we have to avoid. First, we, we have to avoid saying more than the Bible does. That is, raising standards higher than what the, the Bible actually says. The second is the opposite, and that is to avoid saying less than the Bible does. Because most of us have experience in our lifetime with if not ourselves, then with someone that we care about who has gone through a divorce. It's hard not to be defensive. Our natural tendency, therefore, is to justify. So what does Paul say in this passage? First, he says that we ought to reflect on marriage carefully. You know, the honest truth is, in America especially, we spend a lot more time preparing for the marriage ceremony than we do preparing for marriage. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. From the context, the term unmarried probably means formally married, but not widowed. So we have to say, i.e., it means divorced. Paul says that for those whom find this a constant temptation in their life that the right thing for them to do is to marry. In fact, he uses an aorist imperative. 
get married, he says, indicating a strong command. I want you to look at God's view of marriage in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Now, honestly, we could spend six messages probably discussing this subject. And in fact, when I finished this message, it was at least a third too long. And so I had to start cutting those little insightful things that I think find interesting but necessar- don't necessarily have you know, a whole lot that, uh, to d- do with the meat. So I've cut it considerably. And I only have one bar on my thing, so I have to be really quick tonight in order to get through. God's view of marriage, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God hath joined together let no man separate. Here's what happened in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees had come to Jesus, and what they wanted to know was what Jesus thought about divorce. But he responded to their question by saying, divorce is not the issue. Marriage is the issue. Jesus pointed the Pharisees back to God's original intention for marriage, way back to creation. This is not what the Pharisees wanted at all. They wanted to know the way to get a divorce, not what God's intention for marriage was. God's ideal was a monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage. The wedding vows say, as long as we both shall live. It does not say, as long as we both shall love. Love, in fact, is an emotion, and it ebbs and flows. It is stronger at times than it is at others. God's intent was that one man be married to one woman until they were parted by death. God sees marriage as two people becoming one, committed to one another in a covenant relationship that lasts a lifetime. We have to recognize that divorce was never a part of God's original design. God didn't think up divorce. Man did. All by ourselves. God instituted marriage before the fall. Man devised divorce after the fall. Divorce really is devastating. It's sometimes justified It may even at times be inevitable, but it's always tragic. And it's always a departure from God's ideal. Second, remain married permanently. Begins by giving instructions to the married in verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 says, now to the married I command. Remember that in this chapter, Paul is answering questions written to him from the Corinthians. He had already dealt with the questions about the relative, married, the relative merits of being married or single. 
And if it is more spiritual to abstain from sex in marriage or not. In verse 10, he says, now, now to the, and he indicates he's moving on to another question. And these questions and answers have to do with marriage and divorce. To the married, Paul says that here he is dressing both partners who we are to surmise at this point are Christians. He says that a woman who separates from her husband should remain unmarried to keep open the possibility of reconciliation. The same guideline is given to the husband. The clear teaching of Jesus is the same. Jesus does give one possible exemption in Matthew 5, 32. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become adulterous, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus' words are very strong. He said that the only reason one might possibly divorce their spouse, and this is not a requirement, would be in the case of adultery. But I want you to change your view on this a little bit because I think the point here is not that divorced people should never remarry as much as it is that people should not quickly enter into divorce. Divorce is a relationship failure. Before entering into a new marriage... Time should be taken to carefully examine what led to the failure of the relationship that they were in and then to correct those mistakes. Obviously, if you don't correct those mistakes, that's why 73% of the third marriages fail. The source of the instruction we find in verse 10a and 12a, yet not I but the Lord, and then verse 12, but to the rest I not the Lord say. So when Paul says, I, not the Lord, we should not think that Paul is saying that this, that he's about to say is any less than inspired. He's just saying the Lord did not leave any specific teachings on this subject. I think it's interesting to consider that Paul may not have been conscious of the degree of inspiration that he worked under as he wrote 1 Corinthians. He knew that he was writing with God's authority to the Corinthians, but he may not have known that he was speaking with authority to the church of all the ages. Paul does claim, however, the Lord's authority when he says that marriage is to be permanent. Then he addresses their specific questions verse 11, and the latter part of verse 12 and verse 13. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to divorce his wife. Any brother who has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. It says a wife who is is not to depart from her husband. The Corinthians were considering if it might be more spiritual to be single. And if they should break up their existing marriages 
for the cause of greater spiritual gain? And Paul answers the question, absolutely not. Even if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Paul, in addressing a marriage where both partners are Christians, said that they should not, indeed cannot, break up their marriage in a misguided search for higher spirituality. In fact, if one were to, de- one were to depart their spouse, they must either remain unmarried or be reconciled. Now, unfortunately for us, this raises another difficult question, and that is, is the Bible saying that a person who is divorced can never remarry? There are some within the Christian community who hold that that is true. I choose to embrace the fact that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If divorce is not unpardonable, then it follows that it is forgivable. Forgiveness requires an admission of wrongdoing and a desire to move in a new direction. People who get divorced must recognize that divorce is not God's ideal plan. They must accept whatever responsibility they have for the failure of their former relationship. And the person who truly confesses is fully forgiven. And if they are fully forgiven, I believe they can begin again. God holds us accountable, and I think this is important. God holds us accountable for where we are now and what relationship we are in now. There's an interesting thing in verse 14, sanctified by the believer. In God's eyes, a home is sanctified or set apart for himself when the husband or a wife or any family member is a Christian. Sanctified in this context does not mean that that means the unbelieving spouse is saved just by being married to a Christian. It means that they are set apart and that the Holy Spirit is able to work in their lives by virtue of being close to someone who is a Christian. We see that grace extended to the home throughout through one who is an individual blessed of God, and it will radiate into the lives of those who they touch. I can give you an example in the Old Testament. When God was about to destroy the city of Sodom, Abraham pleaded with God to spare the city if 50 righteous people could be found. And Gen- But when that many could not be found... Abraham reduced the number to 45, and then to 40, and then to 30, and then to 20, and then to 10. In each case, God said yes. Not even, 20, not even 10 righteous people could be found. But my point is that God would have blessed the entire population of Sodom for the sake of 10 believers. Ten of his people in their midst. Because just being around God's people means that you are the, the recipient of some of his sanctified blessing. Why should then a Christian try to keep their marriage to a non-Christian together? Because God can be glorified 
in such a marriage and to do a work through the believing spouse to draw the unbelieving spouse to Jesus Christ. An interesting part of this is also says in verse 14, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Not only does the presence of a believing spouse do good for the unbelieving spouse, it also does good for the children. Because it can be said until the child is to the age of the ability to take responsibility upon themselves, the child of a believing parent is regarded as a Christian. I think that there is a beautiful assurance here that the children of Christian parents are safe. Safe at least until they came, they come to the age of personal accountability, which obviously differs from one child to another. Tragically, much of the early church did not heed God's word to keep their marriages together. Especially when married to unbelievers. And one of the greatest complaints of the unbelievers in that age against early Christians was that Christianity broke up families. And that was only true because they did not heed God's word. In verses 15 and 16 we have separation issues. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Or how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul seems to add another condition in which divorce is acceptable. If the non-Christian spouse demands a divorce, the Christian should let the person go. Paul says that the Christian is not under bondage or is no longer bound in that situation. Most scholars believe that that means the person is freed from their marriage commitment at that point. But even that leaves us with some unanswered questions. Jesus said the only reason for a divorce to be accepted by God was in the case of adultery. And then Paul added what seemed to be another condition when Divorce is acceptable, so we have to ask ourselves, are there any additional situations when a divorce would be acceptable to God? As we looked at Matthew 19, Jesus was asked about divorce regulations of the Old Testament. And Jesus responded by saying, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I think almost all of us can agree that divorce has become too easy in our society. As God's people, we need to understand that God intends for marriage to be permanent. God wants us to work through the hard times. He doesn't want us to simply throw up our hands as many people do, and give up on their marriage because they're really too lazy to work through the problems. The third thing is that we need to respond in service to God. We find the principle in verse 17. 
But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. The principle is pretty clear, very easy. You can live for God where you are right now. In fact, this principle is so important that it is repeated three times. We find it in verse 17, we find it in verse 20, and again in verse 24. The point that Paul is making is that, a Christ, that being a Christian is compatible with any social status. You can be single or married, you can be widowed or divorced, you can be slave or free, you can be Jew or Gentile, you can be man or woman, and you can still serve God. You can live in any kind of society and still serve the Lord. He says, as the Lord has called each one, let, so let him walk. So no matter what your station in life is, married or single or divorced or widowed or remarried or whatever, God can work in your life. Instead of thinking that you can or will walk for the Lord when your situation changes, walk for the Lord in the place where you are right now. It is also a reminder of the futility of trying to undo the past in our relationships. In fact, there are some denominations that teach that you need to, if you're in your second marriage, you need to dissolve your second marriage and go back to your first marriage even if both partners have already been remarried, which is nonsense. God tells us to repent of whatever sin there was in our lives and move on. If you are in your second marriage, then don't think you must go now leave your current, your present marriage and go back to your first because of the difficulties that have arisen. He says, so let him walk is also a warning to beware of the danger of thinking that other people have it better than we do. You know, if I just had the circumstances that my friend over here has, then I could live for God. Married or single, divorced, remarried doesn't matter nearly as much as being consistent in our walk with Jesus right now. The main thing is that Christians should stop waiting for things to change in order to serve God. Paul's words instruct us to get going now. We need to stop waiting for a less demanding job, for a schedule that is less hectic, a bigger house or a bigger paycheck, and recognize that God has called us. He has called us where we are And he has a purpose for us to serve him where we are right now. So we need to stop waiting for things to change before we are obedient to our calling. And then he uses two examples. He talks about the practice of circumcision in verses 18 through 20. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. When anyone called while uncircumcised? let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God is what matters. Let everyone remain in the same calling in which he was called. 
So Paul applies that principle of verse 17 now to circumcision. If you were if you were uncircumcised when you were saved, then you don't need to become circumcised. He says that circumcision is of no religious value. He didn't say it's not of any health value or anything like that. He says it's of no religious value because that which it foreshadows has come to fruition through Christ. So stop using circumcision as a measure of spirituality either by its presence or by its absence. And then he talks about slavery in verses 21 through 24. If we realize how much of the population, I think uh, somewhere between a fourth and, a, and half of the population of Rome was slaves. He says, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, for you, you can be made free. Rather use it. But he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while, a, while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Now, circumcision had to do with with spiritual or religious status, and slavery has to do with social status. He's, were, were you called while a slave? Well, don't be concerned about it. A slave can please God as a slave. He does not have to live his life thinking, I can't do anything for God now because I'm a slave. If I were a freed man, then I could serve God. He can and he should serve God as he is right now. He says, brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling in which they were called. So that principle applies across a broad spectrum Married or unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free. We can seek God's best where we are and be used by him right where we are. Of course, when he says, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called, does not mean that he should continue in some, slave, in some sinful course or occupation once we are saved. It certainly does not mean that a converted thief should keep right on stealing or that a converted prostitute should persist in that trade. But Paul does emphatically state that God has sovereignly given each believer their station in life and it is from that station that we are expected to serve him. Now let me just give you three principles in closing. Number one, Christians should not ch change, should not seek to change things which do not matter, just to win the approval of men. We shouldn't do things just to gain other people's approval, things that don't matter. Christians, secondly, should not try to change things in our lives which God does not want changed. The changes that God desires in our lives are not so much the changes of circumstances, but changes in our character. And third, Christians should stop waiting for things to change before we serve God. Paul's words instruct us to get going now. Recognize that God has called us where we are. 
If I'm a teenager, I don't have to wait until I'm 28 in order to serve God. If I am a man who is in my retirement years, that doesn't mean that I no longer have a place to serve God anymore. I wish I could be 30 again and I would serve God. Wherever you are, whatever station in life, where God has placed you is a place that God has called you. And we need to stop waiting for things to change in, in order for us to be obedient to our calling. Let's bow for a word of prayer. I recognize, Father, that it is easy to get to the place in our lives that we say, Lord, I I would serve you if. I would serve you if, Lord, uh, things weren't so hectic in my life. Lord, I'd serve you if... if, um, I had the income that I'd love to have. or I had a job that uh, wasn't so difficult. But we recognize that you've placed us where we are. You've given us a unique ability to reach people and make a difference in this world right where we're at. That you've called us to serve you. And we need to stop using excuses and get busy about serving you. As far as our relationship goes, our marital relationships, being divorces are not a greater sin than any of the other sins in your word. It is a forgivable sin, just as the sins in my life are forgivable sins. If I ask for your for forgiveness. It is less than your ideal. Yet most of us live lives that are less than your ideal. Father, help us to understand that being divorced, remarried, does not keep us from serving you. It does not relegate us to a second-class citizenship that you have a place for us, that you want to use us, and that we do not have to live in the past. You hold us accountable for the present. The marriage that we're in right now, the state that we're in right now, is what you are holding us accountable for today. And so help us, Lord, to live righteously. Help us to recognize that you are with us and that you have a plan for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. We're going to have a...